Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. In a moment I'm going to read from the Bible, but I've been asked to just share what does Jesus' death on the cross mean to me? Um, Jesus' death on the cross means Jesus loves me. He doesn't just like me or tolerate me. He loves me so much that he sacrificed himself to rescue me, a miserable sinner. And I'll spend the rest of my life trying to grasp the cost of that sacrifice and the depth of his love. He really, really loves me. I'm going to read from John 18. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was an olive grove and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? 
Ask those who heard me, surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid a ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. In a minute, uh, I'm going to continue reading on in John chapter 19, picking up where Nicole left off. Uh, Jacko asked me as well to share my thoughts as well. So, what does, uh, what does Good Friday mean for me? Little Peter Cottontail hopping down the bunny trail. It's a sunny day. What sin in me? Hippity hoppity. Easter's on its way. Maundy Thursday, if I remember. Must get chocolates for Sunday. Candles extinguish one by one, getting darker, now one remaining. Awareness of my darkness stirs just a little, 
and shortly is comfortably gone, bringing all the girls and boys lots of lovely Easter joy. The last candle now extinguished. Darkness, is it mine? Is it the third hour? The darkness, is it mine? The darkness holding him there. It looks like mine, it looks like me. Standing in the crowd, raised voices, mocking, curses. Spittle flying, landing on his face. Is it mine? Give us Barabbas. The cry, the blood and water. Crying women, where are the men? Drawing of lots, hippity hoppity. Easter's on its way. Ugly nails press into flesh. On the hammer are hands I know. The darkness grows, I feel its heavy shame. Will it smother me? The last candle. Silence. Extinguished by finger and thumb. Mine. So if you just turn to chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus down and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the first day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus and carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. 
Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them, and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the, sho- the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head, and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Brothers and sisters, will you pray with me as we come to think upon God's word for a few minutes together? Let's pray. Father, as we come again to your word this Good Friday, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. And we pray that you would speak to us just what we need to hear. And we ask this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, What has become known as the peace symbol, many of you know what the peace symbol is, that round circle with a line down the middle and the two lines. What's become known as the peace symbol made its first ever appearance on a London peace march back in 1958. It was designed by a British artist named Gerald Holtam, who wrote this, I quote, I was in despair. 
deep despair. I drew myself, the representative of an individual in despair with hands, palm outstretched outwards and downwards in the manner of Goya's peasant before the firing squad. I formalized the drawing into a line and put a circle around it, end of quote. In the famous painting to which he refers, Goya's peasant, uh, Goya's, the peasant's hands are actually um, stretched upwards, not downwards, but anyway, that's what the sign is based on. For most people, however, the significance is now lost. Half a century after its creation, this potent ideological symbol has become one of the world's most recognisable designs and one of the most commercialised designs. Its creator would surely be turning in his grave if he could see it now as it adorns Tiffany pendants, designer bags, limited edition Volkswagens and Madonna's favourite T-shirts. Nowadays, it's more likely to appear on a catwalk rather than a protest march. And only a dwindling number of people have any idea of its origins in the nuclear disarmament movement. One creative director commented, it's become almost akin to a smiley face, which is ironic given that it was designed to express deep despair. It's not the only symbol, though, that suffered such a fate. For many, the cross has become just another logo and they have little idea of its real significance. And even some within the church may feel that perhaps it's time to get in the marketing experts and come up with something more politically correct than an instrument of torture or execution. What actually happened on the cross? What actually happened on the cross? And why must we stick with it, not just as a symbol, but as the center of our faith? Well, wonderfully, God gave us an answer to that question 700 years before Jesus was born. Let me read for us from Isaiah, Isaiah 52, verse 13 through to 53, 12, well-known verses. Isaiah 52, verse 13, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured that only that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge and my, at my, righteousness, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah chapter 53, familiar words, is the fourth of five songs in Isaiah about the work of a figure called God's servant or the suffering servant. And the New Testament reveals very plainly that this servant in all these prophecies is Jesus. When the apostle Philip came across an Ethiopian reading part of this very passage, we read, then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And Jesus himself quoted this passage and said, this must be fulfilled in me. Of all the servant songs in Isaiah, this one is the jewel in the crown. It's very carefully structured. Five sections, each with three verses. Section one and five are about the servant's ultimate victory. Two and four are about his suffering. And the middle one, the center or the heart of the passage, is about what happened on the cross three themes stand out. First, the sufferings of Jesus. He's described in Isaiah as a man of suffering and familiar with pain. He came from unpromising beginnings like a root out of dry ground, born in a stable to a poor refugee family. He grew up in a northern backwater in one of the smallest countries on the planet. He was very ordinary in appearance. He had no beauty, Isaiah says, or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. You know, in contrast to the pictures in some of my children's children's Bibles, Jesus wasn't a poster boy of his generation. You wouldn't have picked him out in a photo. He didn't have the glamorous good looks of a Hollywood celebrity. And although at times he did enjoy great popularity, he was widely rejected even by his friends and his family and hated. He was despised and rejected by mankind like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Many hated him so much they wouldn't even look at him. And this rejection culminated in the appalling physical suffering and of torture and his agonizing death by crucifixion. He was oppressed and afflicted, verse 7, speaks of physical violence. He was so badly beaten 
that his appearance was disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Sometimes if you read the news or buy the paper or jump online, you see pictures of people who've been beaten up by gangs of thugs, their face so swollen and disfigured, it's unrecognisable. So Jesus hardly looked human after they'd finished with him. But the worst suffering of all was something that we cannot see, you cannot see, the spiritual suffering of being forsaken by the Father. If you want to sell a book on business, the face you want on the front, I don't know, is someone like a Richard Branson, big smile, flowing golden locks of hair, gleaming set of pristine white teeth, founder of more than 400 companies, great success. But if you're going through a hard time, right, he's hardly the person you'd want to turn to unless you're looking for a handout, of course. Jesus was not a man of success. He was a man of sorrows. And that's important. Because suffering is very much part of life in our fallen world. We see it every day in the news. We experience it in our own personal lives. How lucky is God, we might think, to live in heaven which is all full of sweetness and light. What does he know about suffering? Answer, everything. The word who was God became flesh, John tells us, and lived among us. This God-man, Jesus, was a man familiar with suffering, familiar with pain, as one hymn writer says of Jesus, never was grief like thine. I'm told actors use something called imaginative empathy, means they get in the role that they are playing and sort of imagine what it's like to be that particular person they're depicting. But God doesn't need to imagine suffering as a human being. He lived it. In Jesus, he suffered more than we ever will. And that means that when we're finding life hard, we can and should turn to him with confidence. Whatever we're going through, stress, Sorrow, anxiety, physical pain, relationship breakdown, disappointment, loneliness, unemployment, loss, rejection, betrayal, temptation, fear, even bereavement. As we come to God, we know that we will receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. But Jesus' suffering makes him not just able to relate to us, but makes him able to rescue us. In some respects, the the symbol, the peace symbol and the cross seem remarkably similar. Both represent a man in despair with his arms outstretched facing execution. But that is to look just on the surface. God reveals to us in Isaiah 52 and 53 in what ways Jesus' sufferings are unique. He shows us that Jesus is our substitute. We read in Isaiah, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
All of us have gone our own way in life, not God's way. Like sheep, we've wandered off from the right path, from the path that God intended for us. And that refusal to go God's way has a price tag and that price has to be paid. In his suffering and death, Jesus took on himself our sin and our guilt and took the punishment for it. I read a story of a woman named Cheryl Anderson who was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 32. She was diagnosed at the age of 32 when she was two months pregnant. With the course of chemotherapy, radiation, it was likely that she would have survived, but she refused the treatment. Her concern was for her unborn child. And as the cancer spread, she was in severe pain, agony, but refused the drugs. She didn't want to harm the baby. No painkillers except Panadol. She suffered terrible pain, but hoped she would live long enough for her baby to be born safely. Her baby daughter did arrive safe and sound, but Cheryl died on the same day. It was to save her child that she endured such pain and gave up her life. Like that selfless, loving mother, it was for our sake that Jesus suffered and died. It was for all of us to give us life. The Bible says, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The suffering and the death of Jesus should have been our suffering and death. We're the sinners, not Jesus. He was innocent. Isaiah 53 verse 9, he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Even the robber crucified alongside Jesus said, this man has done nothing wrong. Pilate recognized the same thing. I find no basis to put down a charge against this man. Jesus was the only person, he is the only person who's ever walked on planet Earth who did not sin. With no sin of his own to pay for, in his love he took our sin on himself and he paid for them. He substituted himself for us. Jesus is our substitute. The idea of substitution is actually all over Isaiah 52 and 53. He took up our pain and bore our suffering, verse 4. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed, verse 5. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, verse 6. For the transgression of my people he was punished, verse 8. He will bear their iniquities, verse 11. He bore the sin of many, verse 12. Do you get the feeling that this is a point that God doesn't want us to miss? It's actually sobering to go back through those verses and change the word our and put in my. He was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities, my pride, my selfishness, my failure to love God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength and to love my neighbour as myself. That's what Jesus was paying for. It's that personal. If I trust in Christ, then I am one of the many, verse 12, whose sins he was bearing on the cross. The point, though, brothers and sisters, this morning is not to make us feel terribly guilty, but rather grateful. 
deeply thankful. You know, when Taylor Anderson, the child of the mother who died of cancer, when she grows up, I imagine that she'll tell, that people will tell her of what her mother went through in order to give her life. And when they do, I think she'll be moved by her mother, that she would love her so much to do that for her. And so we should be, along with the Apostle Paul, we should be amazed that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. What's the most anyone has ever done for you? Has anyone else loved you anything close to this? The idea of substitution, by the way, in this passage is, is, wasn't just like a bolt out of the sky. The idea of substitution has been at the heart of God's dealing with his people for centuries. At the Passover, back in the book of Exodus, God required that a lamb be killed in the place of each firstborn son so that they could be saved, spared the judgment of God. Similarly, on the Day of Atonement, a goat suffered the penalty for the people's sins and was sacrificed. And then the high priest took another goat, laid his hands on the head of that goat, confessed it on upon it all the sins of the people, and then it describes the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place. So the idea of substitution was nothing new. The old covenant sacrificial system was based on it. What was new was the sacrifice being a human, not an animal. In the end, it had to be a person. Hebrews writes, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. An animal and a person are not equivalent. It had to be like for like. To represent us and to take the place of the people, the sacrifice had to be a real person. Slightly fatuous example, but in the Olympic Games, right, to represent a country in the Olympic Games, you have to be from that country. And needless to say, you need to be a person, right? A cheetah from a local zoo would no doubt beat Usain Bolt every day and twice on Sundays in the 100 metres if you put them up against each other, but the cheetah would be disqualified for having the wrong kind of DNA. And so to represent us and to suffer in our place, God had to become human. A man of suffering, a man of sorrows, a real man. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Born as a member of the human race, wearing our colours, running for our team, team humanity. And as a man, he suffered the punishment that our sins deserve. Wicked men, wicked people did their bit and are accountable for that. But in the end, it was God's doing. It was his salvation plan being worked out. Remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter says... This man, this Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God the Father was directly involved. And actually, this is the worst part of Jesus' sufferings. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And as he did so, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally united in love, were alienated from each other. Agonizing though it was, Jesus, God the Son, was fully on board with the plan. It wasn't a case of cosmic child abuse, as someone calls it. 
with God the Father punishing some poor, helpless, reluctant third party. Father and Son were working together. Isaiah again, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. Jesus' silence speaks volumes. Jesus, as the good, loving shepherd, was willingly laying his life down for the sheep. A little girl was playing in the garden, disturbed a bee. The bee chased her, but at that moment, her older brother came out of the house and she ran into his arms. The bee didn't give up, though, and the next moment, there was a grunt of pain as she felt her brother tense up around her. The bee had stung him. The little girl was safe because bees can't sting twice. On the cross, Jesus took the sting of God's judgment for us. And if we run into his arms, we are safe forever. The wonder of this was not lost on a hymn writer who wrote, Never was love, dear King, never was grief like thine. This is my friend in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. But suffering and death were not the last word. If they had been, like we would be left wondering whether the substitution of Jesus had actually worked. Did God accept it? Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, Isaiah writes, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. After the servant had been killed, how could he then see his offspring and prolong his days and see the light of life? It must have been a real head scratcher for the original readers of Isaiah some 700 years later, but it would take 700 years until that plan would become clear. Peter said at Pentecost, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it, exalted to the right hand of God. That is what we see prophesied here in Isaiah. Jesus was not just raised to life, but exalted. That's where the passage in Isaiah begins. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Yeah, these are the terms that are used elsewhere in the scriptures for God himself. He is the high and exalted one. What a contrast. The servant goes from being despised and rejected to being now high and exalted. And the risen, exalted Jesus is pictured as a victorious conqueror returning in triumph from battle. He will divide the spoils with the strong. When we watch our national team playing on TV, perhaps our national football team, or next year when the Olympics come to Paris, and we're watching our Olympic athletes representing us, when they win, right, when they are doing something amazing, when they win, what do we do? We jump up and down screaming, we've won, we've won. And yet we did nothing. You just, we just sat on the couch with a remote control in our hand eating, I don't know, pies or popcorn, but you did win because your heroes, our heroes were representing us. When they won, we win and we share in the victory. And so Jesus is our conquering hero. He won, he defeated sin and death and he shares the spoil of his victory with people like us. 
And because of his victory on the cross, we enjoy peace with God. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And we are declared right with God. My righteous servant, Isaiah says, will justify many. Do you believe it? They say truth is stranger than fiction, and it is. You know, no wonder Isaiah chapter 53 begins with, Who has believed our message? It's astonishing. But everything Isaiah foretells has happened in history. The servant of the Lord has come, he foretold. He suffered and he's died for sins as foretold. He's been raised and exalted as foretold. You know, a few years after Jesus died and rose again, a man was returning from Jerusalem reading this very bit of Isaiah. He didn't understand it. So God, in his kindness, sent Philip, one of the early disciples, to explain to him from this passage the good news about Jesus. And guess what? There and then, this man put his faith in Jesus and was baptised on the spot. The message he heard that day is the same message that we've all heard today. If it was good enough for that man, why not for you? Why not for me? And why not today? If you're here this morning, and you've come here, you've been drawn to come to Good Friday service here at North Adelaide and, and you've, you came in not believing in the Lord Jesus. You came in not having forgiveness of sins in Jesus and yet you've heard today that in Jesus there is forgiveness. You can have peace with God. Like that traveller on the road 2,000 years ago, why not believe Jesus today? And there's plenty of water falling from the sky. We can baptise you. Why not today? He bore the sin of many. If you are one of the many, through trusting in Jesus, what a staggering privilege. What amazing grace. As one song says, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my saviour God to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would work together with your Son and by your Spirit to work the miracle of new life, new birth, even now as your word goes forth, new life in those who have never really understood their sin. And Father, bring all of us this Good Friday, bring all of us to a fresh awareness of our rebellion, that we might rightly lament our sin, return to you through faith in the Lord Jesus and find in him forgiveness and fullness 
and a clean conscience at the foot of the cross. Father, do your work in us by your spirit and through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.